Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Jenny Rosborough. Jenny is Head of Nutrition at Jamie Oliver and is a registered uh, nutritionist with the Association for Nutrition. Uh, Jenny works across the Jamie Oliver Group to implement nutrition standards and is particularly passionate about improving the food environment through policy change. It's very easy for some people to say that weight loss is all down to calories in, calories out, and that if someone can't lose weight, it's because they don't want it enough. The truth is, obesity and the food choices we make that can lead to it are incredibly complex and based not only on psychological and biological factors, but also on environmental and economic factors too. All of these things are are factors that people may have little control over. A lot of food recommendations on social media don't give any thought to the large proportion of the population that might not be able to afford certain foods or have time to prepare them due to financial and time constraints. And that's why I wanted to speak with Jenny today to help people consider how different some people's situations can be and how that can affect their nutrition and health. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think this information could benefit, maybe a coach or someone interested in government policy and the food environment, please let them know about it and maybe it can be of some use to them. So on to this conversation with Jenny. Let's talk science. Jenny, how are you doing? Good. I managed to get past the first hurdle, which was joining, so I'm pleased. <laughs> well, that's half the battle, so everything from here on should be quite easy. Exactly. Well, let's see. See what you ask. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I've jinxed it already. Touch wood. Um, so, Jenny, um, I suppose let's let's start off about you. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, and there's a load that I really, really want to talk to you about Um and we've got a lot of stuff to cover. But before any of that, I'd really, really like to get into your background. And I was wondering if you tell us a little bit about how you originally got into nutrition. What was your kind of impetus to get into nutrition? And what's the path that you've taken uh, to get to where you are right now? Yeah. Um, okay. So I actually started as a personal trainer back in the day. Um, I, don't, I don't tell people that now. It seems so long ago. But I did a sports degree, a sports science and English degree initially. And then I went on to study a nutrition MSc at Reggie Sport. And then I went to King's to do nutrition. And then after that, I started working at a program called MEND, which is a child weight management program. Um, it's a clinical intervention program. And it runs, um, well, it was running across the UK. And then we developed it to run across um, North America. So doing a lot of traveling across North America, um, Canada, um and australia um, we adapted it for lots of different places um and yeah that was a, a multidisciplinary program and um, so i worked on that and with clinical psychologists and dietitians and exercise um physiologists researchers and it was the largest child weight management program so it was all um evidence-based and based on behavior change techniques nutrition education and physical activity so that was really kind of doing the behavior change side of of nutrition and health and, and eating and then I moved to action on sugar 
as campaign manager. Um, and that was about 2015. And that was more about the policy side of things. So um, thinking about what was in the, what we could do to change the food environment to help promote healthier lifestyle. Um, and so that was quite interesting because I saw kind of with the MEND programme, that was families who were coming through the door and who were engaged and able to kind of make um, different kind of health related choices. They're investing time in it. They came to us like once or twice a week, depending on the age group. Whereas with Action on Sugar, a lot of it was thinking about how can we reach people um, that weren't going to be walking through the door of those programmes, not having access, but still very much needed to benefit from a more nutritious diet and, and healthy. Life. So, um we did a lot of things there, which we're probably going to touch on more. So sugar tax was a big, a big one that we focused on, a big campaign that we focused on. So it was a lot of talking to the food industry, um, trying to get them to change the, the nutrient profile. So reformulate their food to change the nutrient profile. Um, and then also working with government to get them to put policies in place to, to make sure we had a healthier food environment overall. So, um, and then after Action on Sugar, I moved to head of nutrition role at Jamie Oliver's. Um, and that was really to carry on a lot of the campaigning stuff that I was doing um, already Action on Sugar because we'd crossed paths with a lot of those campaigns. But um, but also it's quite a broad role because obviously we do food retail and recipe development um, and media work so and policy stuff as well. So so much broader now, um, but still very much focused on a lot of these kind of food environment campaigns. There we go. You've had quite quite a varied career. So, like you know, you go from you know your PT background, uh, where you're working directly with with individuals, and then you're moving on to working with families and helping them to um, basically improve their eating habits. And then yeah. you're moving on to almost a a public health role and policy role where you're trying to let's say create much grander changes. And just to, to ask you about that. What, how was the difference for you when you're you're working directly with individuals and you can obviously get feedback straight away from people? Yeah. And then you're moving on to a policy change where you're very, very rarely going to have interaction with the individuals who this is going to be affecting. How, how did that feel for you? Do you know, that in, working with the individuals is absolutely invaluable in doing policy work because it just meant I, and I'd also worked with clinical psychologists and health psychologists, which was really helpful. So it meant that I had a, quite a good um, idea of kind of messaging that, that helped families but also where we needed to be careful with our messaging how to get certain messages across um and what some of those real life barriers were so i think you know hypothetically you can consider that that someone is food insecure a family is food insecure but when you're actually working with the families um and realizing what that means and it means not having access to um you know a kitchen or um a freezer or you know all these very kind of they couldn't cook certain foods or it was based on the amount of electricity they'd used that month would you know dictate what they were going to be eating like all of those start um realities like really kind of cropped up so i think it obviously is is very 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 different roles but the there's always been a common thread through my career which has been um around kind of child health and um, reducing obesity levels but just child health more broadly as well okay i i think just having that that little bit of experience with people will really really mm. it has a level of empathy that you know if somebody goes directly into policy work they may not necessarily have yeah i think the empathy thing is that and just knowing how hard yeah you know you can you can go in and you can tell people what to eat or you know what's ideal there's no ideal um as such but, but you can teach people the facts but in reality like how you implement those and put put them into practice is 
like the, the kind of barriers that would crop up would be ones that I would you know not have considered and it's different for every family as well so yeah I definitely think that there's a, a learning and an empathy element there Absolutely. And hopefully, I think at the end of this conversation, a lot of people listening will, will realize that there are a lot of other factors that we may ourselves as individuals never consider to be a factor when it comes to eating well or, or eating healthily, um, but that other people do have to deal with. So hopefully we'll get into that. A lot of the conversations around nutrition kind of center, tend to center around, you know, what food somebody should eat. And uh, a lot of the arguments are, are almost ridiculous in, in that they're talking about which approach is, is better or which macronutrient is better or, or something like that or which diet is better. Thankfully, in recent years, I, I would say that the, the conversation has shifted slightly and there's been a little bit more focus on other aspects and approaches to helping people with their diets and to help them improve their diets. And one of those aspects would probably be behavior change, for example, which uh, seems to be getting a lot more attention right now, which I think is fantastic. But something that you know you have focused on in in your in your career has been around the food environment uh, to a certain extent and how that can contribute to obesity. And I was just wondering if you'd be able to give us a little bit of uh, an explanation of what exactly we mean by the food environment and how that can contribute to to obesity. Yeah, so I guess the food environment in, in the sense that I talk about it in my current kind of policy work is thinking about all those factors around us that influence what we eat. So there's always this this lovely idea um, that's put out by food industry or government quite like it as well, which is around, you know, you've got all, you've got all the food on the shelves and then it's just up to you to make an individual choice. Um, you know, so it's that personal responsibility aspect. But the food environment takes into account that, you know, the food on the shelves are are controlled by someone that's the food industry or what you know what we eat and the way it's sold to us is controlled by someone so it's all those external factors that influence what we eat so um i'm talking about i suppose the the marketing that's influenced what we eat all the time um the price promotions we know that cost is always going to um influence what we eat um so the accessibility of foods i'm talking about all those broader elements that there's also that food environment in the home as well and that's what a family or an individual creates and i guess that's what i would do and talk about a lot more at men like what's happening in the home environment um that is influencing the way your family eats that you know could maybe be be changed so there is the kind of that micro level as well but a lot of the policy stuff is based on on that that macro level um and it's just, you know, it's this understanding that ultimately the food industry is shaping our palates. So we we like foods that we're familiar with and we're familiar with the ones that are heavily marketed, heavily promoted, the ones that are on the end of the aisles in the supermarket. So um, so that becomes, you know, there's there's the normal kind of kid food, um, the, all the, the, the food that is promoted specifically at kids. So that, that's all the foods we end up liking um, because we like what we know. And then that becomes a bit of a supply and demand issue. So because that's what people are buying, that's what the food industry keep on creating. And then they'll say, well, you know, we're, we're just creating what people want to eat. And it becomes this like vicious circle that essentially we need to we need to break. And that's where a lot of the policy things are coming in now. It's much more of a systemic change across the board. Um, so you mentioned like obviously a lot of these foods that people regularly have are foods that are heavily marketed and then that marketing what people would say that they're the marketing they're marketing at what people want and they're trying to get foods to develop foods for what people's tastes and wants are a lot of those foods would be 
consider to be, let's say, ultra-processed foods, things that are very, very high in, let's say, refined carbohydrates, sugars, refined oils. Um, why is there such a focus on those items in particular when it comes to, um, let's say, uh, developing these products? The profit margin. <laughs> so these, these ingredients are cheap. So they have a higher profit margin. You know, the, the packaging could cost more than the food in some of the cases, like they'd spend more on the packaging. Um, yeah, it, it always just comes back to profit and it, it comes back to the foods as well that are going to be more sustainable, like on the shelves, to have more of a shelf life. Um, so there's a big difference there between the fresh foods and those types of foods. Um, and yeah, they're, they're ultra processed foods that tend to be um, higher in fat and sugar and salt as well, or saturated fats. And essentially what's happening in our food environment is an abundance of energy dense but nutrient poor foods and that's the way we eat and that's why you can see what we're seeing now is this triple burden of malnutrition so it's um a child might be um undernourished they might experience hidden hunger um, but they also might have obesity and it's because um the food that they are eating are very energy dense but they're just not getting the nutrients from them and, and this is a bit of an agricultural kind of well historical problem as well because there was a time where the population really grew we just needed a lot more food availability and those staple grains were um you know easy enough to provide and cheap enough to provide so lo lots of countries are still kind of surviving on these foods but they whilst they have the energy um, and some nutrients they don't have kind of the breadth and variety and diversity of nutrients that is required so yeah, essentially, we talk about child obesity a lot, but it, it, overall, it, it's about the lack of nutrients that, that people are getting in children, particularly. So the, the agricultural systems that are in place now, a lot of them have been designed to make sure that people aren't going hungry from like a calorie perspective, that we, the, let's say the market is absolutely flooded with all of this energy, like you said, these calorie dense foods but it hasn't exactly been focusing on getting the nutrients into people because, like, you know, nobody's going to deny that calories are incredibly important, but obviously um, what you said there is that we've got an overabundance of calories. We've got this uh, almost um, overnutrition, but undernourishment. Um, uh, I'm not sure if I've, I've said that the correct way, but basically people are eating a lot of calories and not getting the, the, the nutrients that they should be getting because of this uh, focus on on processed foods and yeah. is that still, let's say um a focus within the government on subsidizing certain certain crops and certain uh, products like that yeah so there has been and i guess like what's really relevant at the moment is um in, in terms of kind of subsidies and taxes and there's this bigger kind of conversation going on at the moment about incentives for companies who are producing healthier products um, and healthier foods because essentially the reason why there's a government role here is that they definitely need to take a responsibility in terms of creating a level playing field so you have some companies that will do um, whether it's manufacturers food producers you know retailers that are trying to do the right thing and want to do the, the right thing um, but are massively at a commercial disadvantage if they are so you need the government to come in and create that kind of level playing field um, and that only happens with regulation so it's not about, you know, changing every single thing that people are eating, taking away all like, you know, the, um, the, the foods that people love. It's just about having a bit more of a balance where the ones that are a lot um, less nutrient dense um, and a lot higher in, in energy are not necessarily the ones that are heavily kind of promoted. Um, yeah, all the time. So one area with kind of subsidies and taxes is looking at yeah how how we can subsidize the healthier foods. Um, 
and you know tax some of the the, the less healthy ones but as we've seen it so far with our sugar tax, which is just on the drinks, so soft drinks, industry levies, it's official now, um, is that the tax is on the manufacturers. So it's not on the individual. So it's not on us going to buy the drink unless the manufacturers decided that's the way they want to go. It's on, on the manufacturers. So they're the ones that get charged if they have sugar that is higher than 5% um, in in their drink product. So there are definitely kind of approaches like that that can be taken. And it's been really successful with the, the soft drinks industry level. Obviously, like lots of backlash, but it has shown to be successful in terms of reducing sugar in those products. So, so I suppose that's a really, really good example of, you know, like these uh, ultra processed ingredients, because we're talking about sugar, refined sugar, which is, you know, for want of a better explanation, it, it's nothing other than, than calories that are going into a very, very, easily consumed um, food, something that's, you know, hyper palatable. Was that one of the reasons that um, sugar was focused on for, for this levy? Um, or are there other reasons uh, that that kind of soft drinks were, were focused on in particular? Yeah, it's a good question. So there was a few quick wins with the sugar. First of all, with the, yeah, well, sugar um, and soft drinks in particular. Um, so we know that Children and teenagers were having two to three times more sugar than was recommended for them um, in terms of maximum daily allowance. Um, we also know that the majority, the biggest source of sugar was coming from soft drinks. Um, and then in terms, so it was going to be the quickest win. Um, you weren't compromising nutritional value because um, sugar is there, you know, is an ingredient to be enjoyed, but it's not given, you know, good nutrients to people. Um and it and it's quite easy to remove to reformulate from drinks so when you reformulate so that you're changing kind of the nutritional composition of foods you um have to the nutrient that you've removed you have to replace with something now sugar compared to fat doesn't have as many calories so um you ha you're kind of at risk of removing the sugar and then replacing it with something more uh, a nutrient that's more calorific like like fat for example so you might reduce the sugar but the overall calories might go up now there are ways to do that and it's replacing with protein it's replacing with fiber um and there are ways to do that in foods and, and there's also options about kind of overall portion size but in drink it doesn't sugar doesn't contribute to the weight of the product so you could remove it and not have to replace it with something um yeah so so it was quicker win from that perspective as well but the rationale definitely was that um, you know, sugar, soft drinks were the biggest source of, of sugar in the diets of, of children and teenagers. Um, and how, let's say, there was obviously some backlash to this. Um, was there, was that backlash predominantly from, let's say, the industry side of things, the people who are going to have to, let's say, as you said, the industry are the ones who are absorbing that, that tax, that levy. Was the backlash predominantly from the, them or was there a, a, a backlash from, let's say, the general public as well when it came to the sugar levy? Mm, interesting. Well, definitely, definitely from industry. So there's all sorts that were going out about, you know, it would lead to job losses. And, and actually all of that was completely, um, it, it, we all kind of, there was big comebacks against it because actually it created jobs in places where there would have to be more work and kind of reformulation. And they were also really worried about job um, sorry, income losses and things like that. But what we saw was whilst the sugar went down by 29%, um, I think, in the first year um, in these drinks, um, sales of soft drinks also went up, but just the, the lower sugar versions or the sugar-free versions. So it didn't actually impact on industry in the way that they were saying it would impact. 
Um, so that's one element. But then in terms of public um, reaction, yeah, there were some people that just hated the idea of this nanny state concept that I prefer to call a duty of care. Um, but, you know, anyone meddling with, with their favourite drink or whatever, and you understand that. And that's why some with reformulation, it's helpful to kind of take a bit of a gradual approach and reduce over time. Um, but there was huge public support for it. And those kind of that those that public support really helps get these policies across the line. So we need to make sure that we're involving the public in policy. Um, so it started the reason why it got government traction in the first place is because of a petition um, that got hundreds of thousands of signatures. And therefore that went to um, Parliament, they had to discuss it, or they had to acknowledge the petition. So um, yeah, some people didn't necessarily, you know, you'd always get backlash from from some people but generally there was a lot of public support for it um which is which is good and i also you know it is this idea of taking away and, and you have to be careful of that when we're talking about the policies but ultimately you're talking about something that we might, maybe shouldn't have been there in the first place like some energy drinks with 20 teaspoons of sugar initially they don't exist necessarily like that anymore but you know there was no there's never like an upper limit on the amount of salt or saturated fat or sugar that can be in these products and and at those points, it, it can become obviously really unhealthy if you're having it occasionally. OK, but these are the kind of products, especially drinks that people were consuming really regularly. So, yeah, a bit, a bit of a mixture, but surprisingly, um, quite a lot of public support on it. And it's good to know that those, um, let's say, those uh, petitions that are sent around regularly, that they do actually have some sort of an effect um, so it's good to hear that. Now, you, you mentioned some figures there around about the, the amount uh, of that, that sugar intake was reduced by that. Could you just go through some of the, the let's say, the effects and the results of, of the Action on Sugar campaign? Yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's, I mean, it really was a joint effort at the time, Action on Sugar, um, Children's Food Campaign, um, Jamie Oliver's group, there's um, a coalition called Obesity Health Alliance, and it has kind of all, all the ones I just mentioned, plus like British Dietetic Association, Cancer Research, British Heart Foundation, which is great, because we all work as part of a coalition, and obviously, um, everyone's working towards the same evidence base and calling for the same actions, which is really, really powerful. And it has been with policy so far. Um, but yeah, so in the first year, and it's relatively new still, but what we knew is that by the time it's come into play officially, as in the companies were going to start getting fined, 50% um, of manufacturers or products um, had been reduced, reduced the sugar to below the amount of, of the sugar tax, so less than 5%. You'll see a lot of drinks out there now that are like got about 4.8 grams per 100 grams of sugar. Um, and yeah, 29% reduction overall kind of across the board in sugar in the products. And um, the reason why these kind of reformulation programs are so powerful is because you're not necessarily relying on the individual to make that change. So we saw that, um, we've seen it work really successfully with the salt reduction program as well, which I can come on to. But so, so that is like what I would call a mandatory reformulation program. It's about getting the sugar reduced, but the tax is on the manufacturer. So essentially it's mandatory reformulation program. Um, we also have a sugar reduction program in food products. So it's in nine categories that contribute the most sugar to children. And with, with that program, in the same amount of time, only 2.9% of sugar was reduced across the board. And that's because there wasn't um, any kind of mandatory action there. There wasn't a lever. So it's voluntary program and it's delivered by Public Health England. And even though there is monitoring, um, there's no real strong incentive. So that's why we know you need kind of regulation. Um, and a lot of the companies, to be honest, want regulation because they want that level playing field. So they want to know that everyone's moving in the right direction. Um, but yeah, so 
to touch on the salt reduction program, which was a good kind of example of where the, where the sugar might come in as well, where that, where that might work, is it's a great example of public health policy because the salt... So if you think salt really impacts blood pressure, high blood pressure, not loads of signs and symptoms. People aren't necessarily actively reducing their salt. And even if you ask people who are actively reducing their salt intake what they're reducing in order to do that, it's not usually the source where they get the most of their salt from, which for a long time, the biggest contributor of salt was bread, I believe. Now it might not taste particularly salty, so that's not obvious to people, but it's because it's something that we eat frequently. So um, so to have like a, a behind the scenes intervention where you change the food at source, so the food on the shelves, but do it gradually so people don't really um, notice, there wasn't lots of backlash against it, and um, was really, really impactful. And I think it was between 2006 and then 2014 just under 10 years um intake and salt across the population reduced by 11 percent. and like i said there was no real backlash people didn't really know um and our taste preferences changed with it we have that evidence for salt to suggest that um and there was very little cost to public health but the savings in terms of you know the impact on high blood pressure and then um the link to kind of heart disease and everything there have been um have been huge and you can see those kind of predictions um, by like the nice clinical guidelines of really the impact that's had so that's a really good example of a, of a successful public health campaign I, I think what, what you said there about it needing to be regulated because it, it it levels the playing field for people is a really really important factor because i i okay i, I want to say this i'm uh, uh for to a fault i'm an optimist um and i like to think that manufacturers um would really, really like to improve the, let's say, the health profile of, of their products. But I also know that money and profit is a huge uh, factor for any decision that a company will make. So if you say, okay, we're going to give you guys the option of reducing the the, the sh- sugar content of this food, yeah. um, well, you don't have to do it. They're like, well, if I don't have to, that means my competitors probably aren't going to do it and it's going to be easier for them to produce an, a tastier product. So I'm not going to do anything. But like once that regulation is there, everybody has to do it. It's just, yeah, it makes sense for people. Yeah. But one thing with that is, is it's almost like the government is taking a very, very heavy handed role in, um, in people's nutrition. And the, the government is dictating, well, this is what you can make. This is how you should be able to make it. This is what we want the population to eat. There are some people within the population who are going to fight back against that. And I just wanted to know, what is the kind of general reaction from the public when it comes to that? Does it feel like you use the word yourself, nanny state? Is there a very, very large proportion of the public that feels like that? Um, or is it just a allowed minority? I would say allowed minority. It's all the ones that you always get exposed to those, though, don't you? Um, yeah, no, you definitely like kind of do get that backlash. Um, but I would say at the moment the individual isn't controlling the foods on the shelves. So it's either going to be industry or it's going to be um, government helping with that. So if government aren't stepping in, then the industry are doing it, if that makes sense. That's kind of how, how I look at it. And and like I said, there's kind of none of that regulation really at the moment that exists. So it's not about kind of taking away um, like, you know, options from people and favourite products and removing those off the shelf. It's it's about gradually changing the nutritional profile of the foods on the shelves so they promote health versus vice versa, the opposite that they're doing, I suppose, um, at the moment, which, and, and it's not just that, it's looking at all the tactics that we get to 
sell those foods. So whether it's the marketing, the price promotion, so having more of a balance there as well, so that, because at the moment we know that they lean towards the, the, the less healthy products and we need to kind of move them more towards kind of the healthier ones. So that that's generally kind of what um, we're campaigning for to kind of make, I think the line was like the healthier choice, the, e the easier choice. Um, and I still hate that choice word. I think it's something that, um, yeah, we're led to believe that we have all this choice. But like I said, right at the beginning, I think that our choice is always heavily influenced and, and, and not, you know, I think when it comes to kind of our food and what impacts our food and our health and, and definitely talk about this in obesity context is there are so many different factors that influence what we eat. It's never as simple as I've gone into a supermarket and I've chosen I've, cho I've chosen this purely based on health Um that, you know, there's kind of the time, the money, the convenience um, of the products, plus what we just want in in that moment, um, which is fine as well. And we make. I think it's something like over 200 food related decisions a day like but we're a lot of them are kind of um they're not really obvious ones so we outsource a lot of those decisions that means that we're just creatures of habit or if there's a nudge which is that's at the end of the aisle that's by the checkout that you know that's on a price promotion that might be something that um would make us kind of go for something over something else as well um yes i think it's always good to kind of help people understand that they're it's really not as simple as just choosing something because you want to be healthy or not choosing something because you don't want to be healthy. Um, what dictates our food choice is psychological factors, biological factors, um, a lot of social and environmental factors as well, which I think is probably like more of what this conversation is about. But I think it's good for people to have awareness of those complexities because it is oversimplified a lot. No, absolutely. And I, I think um, if, if we talk about nutrition in the sense that it's spoken about in, let's say, you know, popular media. Yeah. We're almost led to believe that when it comes to obesity, that the, the solution is, is very, very easy. It's a matter of eating less and moving more. Um, yeah. And I, I think from a, let's say, if, if we talk about a, a simplistic method, it is, it can be that simple, but implementing that kind of a change is incredibly complex and incredibly difficult with a lot of people because, like you said, there are a huge amount of factors that go into the decisions that, that are around food. And I was wondering, like we, we touched on that already, if you could kind of elaborate on how one's, um, let's say, socioeconomic background, one, you know, one's uh, like level of poverty can relate to the food choices that they have to make. Because you, you mentioned some of those earlier when you were talking about um, your work on MEND and your interaction with people on that campaign. But if you could kind of go into just how, because um, I, I feel that a lot of people on who are active on social media or very, very um, vocal on social media, they're coming from, let's say, a better off background where they've never had an issue with having to buy, you know, to pay for food or to pay or to, to process that food at home or to cook it yeah well and I, i'm thinking in my head now i'm just thinking of all of those accounts that are showing like you know super fruit smoothies and stuff like that or you know um, acai bowls and stuff like that and yeah nutrition isn't that when we're talking about public health and I, I was just wondering if you could kind of elaborate on how finance can factor into that for a huge amount of the population yeah definitely so um I think, well, on a few different levels. So one of the, the aspects is just, you know, we said where all the, the price promotions, for example, the accessibility of food is on um, is, is on the, the ultra-processed 
products that are high in fat, sugar, salt. Um, I read, actually, there is a stat, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's about the high streets and um, in poorer areas, how much more saturated the high streets are with those, um, yeah, like the fast food takeaway places that actually a lot of young people use it as a place to gather as well. Um, and then we'll buy the food there kind of be, by default. Plus there's lots of price promotions. I remember there being like a school uniform deal or something. And it was ridiculous. Like, you know, a whole fried chicken and chips meal for like a pound, two pounds. Um, that is hard to um, resist when you might not be getting fed, you know, at home or your parents might be working late when you go home or whatever it is for young people. Um, there's There's a kind of the preparation element as well. So it might be that they just don't have adults or parents they're able to kind of cook and prepare for them because of working um working hours i read this um i think it was a un from a unicef report actually and it said that low-income groups have good access to unhealthy foods and bad access to healthy foods um which really stuck because there is this whole concept of like food deserts as well so um yeah, it just works really hard to access kind of the fresh nu nu nutritious foods um not just on a money level but in terms of where you live and what's kind of around you. So um, it, that's where it becomes kind of a real systemic um, thing. But, and there's also this other um, stat by the Food Foundation that says, it was, it was from a couple of years ago and they um, did a report and they showed that the poorest 10% of UK households would have to spend about 75% of their disposable income to eat something that aligns to the government's Eat Well Guide, so our nutrition recommendations. Um, versus 6% in the richest 10% of the population. So it just shows how impossible it is, you know, for some families based on, on poverty and, and health inequalities is actually widening still. Um, obviously shouldn't, but... Uh, I, I, like, I, I think that's um, something that a lot of people just don't consider because when you think of that, if, if somebody is from a, a lower income household, the proportion of their income that they need to dedicate to eating healthy is, is just, it's, it's not feasible for them because they have other things that they need to worry about. They need to worry about paying rent on, you know, every month and they need to, to worry about whatever their other outcomes are. So yeah. like, if, you're, if you're looking for a place to cut costs and you can cut costs with your food, yeah. um, why not starting? And it, it's, it's, we, we're living in a society, a society where it's easy to do that. From a financial perspective, just to focus on like cheaper uh, ultra-processed foods, that's going to happen. People are going to, to kind of move in the, in that direction. Yeah. Um, and people one, like, but it's not a waste either because they know that they'll get eaten. You know, these foods are palatable; they're highly palatable; they're designed like that. So I think that's, I, I think that's, that's another major factor because those those three things that we spoke about. Well, we could say four if we hadn't salt. So like um, uh, refined carbohydrates, sugar, fat, salt. You add those all together, and these. You know, obviously companies put a lot of effort into formulating these products to make them tasty and to make them appealing. And like you said, hyper palatable. People yeah. are going to go. As if, if you're saying it's cheap, it's tasty. Yes, please. I know that, that's how I feel all the time. Anyway, so. exactly. um, Human nature. Exactly. Um, so one thing that kind of relates to that and something that you've been particularly vocal about in, in the past few months, obviously during the, the whole COVID-19 pandemic, is food insecurity and particularly food insecurity in in children um during lockdown and i i know for a lot of people listening um like the worst side effect of lockdown that most people are, are going to have experienced is that they may have had to queue 
for 10 or 20 minutes to get into a supermarket to buy all their food, which they probably were able to get as normal. Yeah. But it wasn't the same. It wasn't like that for a lot of people. And I was wondering if, if you know, you could tell us a little bit about um, some of the findings about food insecurity during during lockdown, you know, that, that that's probably still going on right now, actually. Yeah, that's really good. The Food Foundation, again, they're a really good source of information for all of this because they've done, they, they carried out kind of a lot of research the whole way along. Um, and their stat is that the number of households um, with children who were experiencing um, food insecurity doubled during lockdown. And that's for lots of different reasons. So, well, the main three reasons were due to food supply, due to isolation, but also due to loss of income. And I think that for some families, they were already experiencing food insecurity and this just exacerbated it um, or really brought it to the fore because it's, it's kind of frustrating that food insecurity, that, you know, this has been an issue that's been going on for ages and it's something that should not exist in a rich country like this country. Um, but it has been. And all of a sudden, I think that maybe richer people were experiencing food insecurity in lockdown because of um, just the food supply on the shelves and not being able to get their favourite, you know, whatever it is, um, and, and the isolation aspect. Um, and then all of a sudden it becomes an issue. It's like Boris Johnson um, got um, coronavirus and complications are probably again exacerbated by the link with obesity. And, and that's been, you know, quite fully reported. So now there's a big government focus on obesity. And it's like, why, why do certain people have to experience these things to do something about pe other people who've been experiencing it, you know, the whole time? But I think from what you're saying before, what I, what I was just thinking in my head when we were talking about the Eat Well Guide stat is, um, in in lockdown you seem to have people who are not eating out not socializing as much so they're saving money versus people who families who um might have like lost income um job might have been impacted and already most of their income was was going on kind of bills and food anyway who are losing money so again that's a classic example of like the health inequalities and how they're expanding um but there's been, I think, a really prominent campaign throughout this time has been the, the school meal allowance. So the school lunch meal allowance. Um, it's officially called free school meals at the moment, but that's something that people are trying to get changed because there seems to be a stigma attached to that, which prevents the children who need to access free school meals from accessing them. That's a whole different conversation, but that stigma element is really, really interesting. But so a lot of the campaigns were about, first of all, making sure that those who are having free school meals um, were having a replacement when they weren't at school and so there was a 15 pound voucher um system that was set up really quickly um which was good but in practice it wasn't so effective at everywhere um unfortunately in terms of people being able to access and download those vouchers so there were definitely implementation issues but and then and then the conversation became around okay extending that to the may half term because these um, families are still food insecure in the may half term um, and this is the whole holiday hunger campaign that's been going on for quite a while. Um, and then that just about crossed the line. And then the campaign, no, it started with Easter, sorry. And then we had to campaign again for the May half term. And then it started campaigning again for the, um, for the, for the, for the sorry, the summer holiday vouchers. And, and government are calling it. They finally kind of, um, well, back, I guess kind of backstepped a bit and agreed to it. But they're very much calling it kind of a, a COVID fund or a COVID you know they're relating it to COVID still when this is something that needs to it's needed to exist long before COVID and it will need to exist long after COVID but so that's been quite an interesting campaign that has ramped up at this time um, and we know that school meals tend to be a lot more nutritious there's stats on this than than school lunches that are kind of bought in from the home so 
I guess there is definitely that concern about children who aren't at school um, not getting access to nutrition when at least they had that safety net. So um, you, you'll have to forgive my ignorance on this, but so back in Ireland, um, schools don't provide meals. Um, you know, people bring, bring their own food. So, yeah. and, and you, you mentioned a term there that I, I, I wasn't familiar with before, and that was holiday hunger. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, first, could you tell us how, how much do school meals or did school meals that were provided to children contribute to, let's say, their overall dietary quality. Um, and then can you just talk a little bit about that, that holiday hunger as well, please, just to kind of elaborate a little on it, please. Yeah, yeah so how much they contribute to their nutrition? That, I mean, it's a good question. It's going to be a mixed bag. So this is part of the problem with some of the policy, like even where it does exist on paper, it's not well monitored or implemented um, well sometimes and school foods is, is a classic example of that where the policy exists and there's school food standards so technically um the meals that are provided should hit all these um targets these food targets um but they don't necessarily and that is obviously a concern having said that there'll be some schools that are doing it a lot more effectively we're trying to get um offstead i don't know if that's just a uk term either but that um who yeah do you have that in mind? um so Obviously, they'll go and kind of obviously like they're checking up on everything across the board, what the school does, but they don't assess the food. Um, and we're like, this is this is a basic r requirement. You need to put this on your checklist. You need to check that they're learning, they're teaching maths well. But you also need to check that, you know, the nutrition standards and, and the food that you're providing is, is healthy. Um, not quite there with that yet. So um, but overall, the stats are that these um school meals will provide more nutrition um than the than school lunches that are typically kind of bought in across the board um and then holiday hunger yeah it's well exactly what it's just this it's just this kind of awareness i suppose that like if children are getting fed and relying on that free school meal then what is happening when it's when they've got six weeks off and the you know nothing basically that and you don't know that will vary from family to family so as soon as they're at home if, if they're living in food poverty and they have that safety net of school lunch what is happening when they're off for six weeks and so there's been lots of campaigns around that and one of the the arguments against it was a bit of an implementation issue but then in covid you know that infrastructure had to be built overnight when the when the kids weren't at school anymore so you know that it can be done and of course there are teething problems and needs to be improved but hopefully there will be some precedents set here which could be one positive outcome of it all that'll be hard to back on i think right so basically at the moment that this is kind of a uh, this is a network this is something that's been developed and hasn't been uh, implemented as of yet is that right yes yeah, so um it has been for this COVID period. So it was, in, so, um, um, so yeah, in the May half term Easter holidays, they did extend this voucher scheme, which is good. Um, and they have agreed to over the summer holidays, but they haven't agreed to for the longer term future, which is what obviously trying to get to now. Okay. So th this is a situation where the government directly has to basically provide nutritious foods for children um, from backgrounds that, you know, they, they may not be able to, to afford it. Um, I've, I've heard people speak about, you know, school meals here in the UK. And I, I, again, this, this is just purely me, me the hearsay, basically, because, I, again, I don't have any experience of it. But people saying that, you know, the meals that some of these kids would be getting would be, some you know, the best food that they would, might get for the day or, you know, might be the one hot meal that they get from the day. Um, 
and I, I, I just think like, you know, I wasn't aware of this and I'm, I'm sure that there's a, a huge amount of other people who aren't aware. I'm not going to blame it on me just being Irish, and, you know, coming from a different system. Um, I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that just are completely unaware of how somebody's background and, you know, how somebody's income level can affect, you know, what they're eating and their access to food and what their kids are getting. And, you know, like, I'm, I'm thinking of it now and it's making me angry and sad at the same time. Um, but I wouldn't have been aware of any of this if it hadn't been for a lot of the information that you were putting out. So I think it's absolutely fantastic that you're putting out this information, that you're, you're doing something to campaign to have these changes, you know, happen. I'm just wondering, obviously, there's a huge amount of things that the government needs to be doing to, let's say, improve the the diet quality of the population at large. But in your opinion, what are some of the most pressing issues that, that the government sh- needs to start looking at and needs to start making changes towards? Or, or what are some of the, the, the campaigns that you're, you're currently working on right now? Yeah, okay, so two, two different parts, two different um, parts of this answer. One of the things is it, it's really interesting, again, a Food Foundation report, is, is a right to food campaign that they started probably a couple of years ago now, um, which is really, really good and important. And it's basically got a lot of young ambassadors talking about their experiences. Um, so that, that kind of lived experience is often missed out of policy. We really, really need it. Like I said at the beginning, like my MEND experience, having interaction with those families, it, it kind of definitely educates you a lot more. You get a lot more insight. So this um, yeah, right to food campaign, it was initially about getting government to measure food insecurity. If they, weren't, if, they, if they haven't got that information, then they're not going to take any action. So that was the first thing, which they are now doing. Um, but they also want like a watchdog, so a commission um, to make sure that it's all being monitored as well. So what the government do do. Um, so that's kind of one element of the food insecurity side. So we just need that monitoring and we need government to be held to account. Um, and there's lots of different kind of areas that need focusing on there and the school meals just being one small part of that, but making things like that, just like healthy um, start scheme a bit more accessible. So there's these, there are other kind of schemes that can help families, but they're not well publicized or they're hard to reach. So that kind of thing. Uh, but the other area we're really focusing on at the moment, um, which is linked because child obesity and health is linked to income as well. Um, so we know that in poorer areas are two to three times um, as likely to have obesity than um, in wealthier areas. So that is definitely a link as well. And it comes back to how do you solve that then? And it's not just public awareness campaigns. It is about systemic changes. Um, but within those systemic changes and, you know, kind of um, increasing the um, kind of income benefits and things that people get. There's also back to what we talked about at the beginning, the restrictions around marketing and price promotions and so we know that our government are go about to announce another um, strategy to reduce um, obesity across the population and improve health um, that's the idea and obviously we said to them you need to do the strategic um, policy stuff so that is restrictions on price promotions or making um, healthier food more affordable but also all the marketing because there's lo- lots of evidence that shows the impact of um marketing we don't think necessarily oh we just saw that on tv and i haven't run off to get that so therefore it doesn't you know impact me it really does and it's kind of insidious it shapes our preferences it shapes what's normal um and there's some interesting studies showing how that can equate to kind of um calories that it you know increase over time calorie intake that increases over time um and this wouldn't just be like a a 9pm watershed on tv is what's been spoken about um because we know the loopholes that exist currently in children's marketing um, means that between that 6pm and 9pm 
um, gap that a lot of children are still getting exposed to, to all of this. Um, but also across online. Um, so, you know, a lot of where I think some of the industry argue that we have reduced marketing to children, but it on TV, but it's just actually changed to, to somewhere else. So, and that's YouTube and everywhere else that, you know, they're watching at the moment. So we need some of those bigger policy areas. And then the other area is the reformulation. So those programs, like I said, with the salt reduction program, that gradually improve the nutritional profile of foods on the shelves. And that's really important because it means that, um, you know, like food labeling policies and things like that as well. It means that people, families, um, really busy. We eat by habit. We're not choosing food just based on health. Um, lots of other factors like we've talked about. So it just essentially means that, um, yeah, this, a lot of this work, I guess, has been done, done for us. And it's not about taking all the unhealthy foods off the shelf and covering it with just healthy stuff. It's about gradually changing and over time us having kind of a healthier food environment. So there's quite a lot of actions that we still need to see. A lot that has been announced by the government um, previously in other plans over the last couple of, well, over the last five years, actually. Um, but the only thing that's really properly been implemented well so far is it's a soft drinks industry levy. So um, we've ha we've had the evidence for a lot of the other policies for ages, but throughout David Cameron, Theresa May, and now Boris Johnson, um, no one's really been bold enough to make you know all all of the steps that are needed. And I think there's enough evidence now that that it would be hard to not do some of this stuff. Um, so yeah, there's my breezy short answer to what needs to be done. <laughs> well, when when you say it would be hard to to not do some of this stuff, well, just just what do you mean? Uh, could you give us like a, any examples of, of, of what you mean by that? Yeah, just in terms of responsibility, I think the government, they have from all angles, um, the evidence that shows that our current food environment is harming health of children and that and it disproportionately impacts the lower income families and that health inequalities are increasing. So, um, you know, I think that that it's difficult for them to put some of these policies into into play and think obviously especially at the, at the moment if it's going to impact the economy um but like i said even with the soft drinks industry levy it didn't reduce the sale of these drinks necessarily overall but people were consuming a lot less sugar um overall so yeah i think at, at this point there there's a lot of evidence showing what what needs to happen and we just need um the government to accept their role in in regulating which is quite hard for conservative um you know, government who don't who don't want to do that. But essentially, it just if they leave it as it is, then, you know, some people are fine and other members of the population are not fine. And we have all the stats that show that generally health wise, um, you know, we, we don't have have good health for, um, you know, a country that could do a lot better, I think. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I think, you know, this is uh, this is an area of nutrition that, you know, where we're not talking about things like calories and macronutrients, although we are to a certain extent, but we're talking about something that is still, you know, incredibly important to the way people eat food and to the decisions that people make and to ultimately what needs people's health. Because I suppose, you know, at the end of the day, when we're talking about nutrition, we're talking about ways to improve people's health. And if that comes down to policy changes or changes in food environment, that's going to be something that's absolutely essential. And I just want to say, like, Jenny, I, I think it's absolutely amazing the work that you're doing. I, I think it, you know, I, I think you should have 10 or 100 times more followers than you already have because then we, we'd start getting the met some really, really essential messages out to people. And we'd start probably start building some of that empathy that I was, I was talking about earlier in 
let's say the fitness world or the general nutrition world where it's very very easy to put blame on people with obesity or to put blame on people who are um you know from poor economic backgrounds and just say you know just they don't want it enough which i think is an absolutely horrendous thing to say about people yeah um just for anybody who you know is is um uh, maybe not following you right now how can they they find out more about what you're doing or follow you what what's the best way to do that Oh god, I'm so bad at technology. So I'm kind of person that like you know ha- has the website that never really 3 years ago we never really launched it. So Twitter and Instagram really. Um as you know, I haven't to get instructions on joining live. <laughs> um yeah, Twitter and Instagram are the best ways um at the moment. And I think that's a really interesting point, you know, just about kind of how we can um be unaware of kind of the all the big issues that are going on and and that that's where the stigma kind of comes in in, in terms of people being able to um understand what other families are going through and having that lack of empathy and i would just say um on that that i think the best thing that we can do is teach people how complex it, it is um you know obesity and health choices and things like that and how complex all the factors are that influence those i think that's one of the the main things that we can do as a starting point um to kind of re- reduce the stigma that you know the examples that you were given because you know, i still hear it a lot and i'm shocked what i do but it's very much still exists I I I think I think it's very very much the it's the general public consensus that that that's what it is and and the images and the 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 messages that are put out on social media contribute to that a lot um yeah. but like you said it it is an incredibly complex issue um and I'm glad that you're getting into some of that complexity and you're explaining some of that um to more people out there and it's it's something that more people need to learn learn about and that's why you know I I Uh, anybody who's listening to this I really really encourage you to to follow uh, what Jenny is putting out on social media um and learn more about it um just like I I say that I I did not give much consideration to the economic factors that go into to nutrition at all uh, and that's just just you know luckily because of my background but we have to consider it because if we want to I think I think one thing that happens is when people who can afford uh pts or nutritionists generally aren't going to have to deal with any of these economic issues at all but when we're talking about the public the you know the general population at large these are factors that are yeah. hugely important if, if we want to improve the health of the population at large if we want to reduce you know population levels of obesity we need to think about all of these things and think about these much more complex issues so um i just think it's it's absolutely amazing what what you're doing and i just want to to wish you the absolute best of success with with everything that uh, you you have uh, coming to to you in the future thank you thanks for having me on it's been a great chat mm-hmm. absolutely and hopefully we'll uh, be able to get you back on at some time in the future okay definitely great thank you Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. 
Sí, sí. Dan.